Okay. We're, we're live. Um, <clears throat> if you would like a copy, I have the... Uh, well, I guess there's no more fill-in-the-blankers, so you'll just have to make your own notes. Uh, <clears throat> um, agenda for tonight, remember. So the review part is remember the purpose of the course, to review the assertions I've made so far. And then tonight I want to talk about dangers unique to students of the Bible in the category of the realm of politics and then dangers for religious people in general in the realm of politics. And so the purpose of this course, again, is to not pursue or persuade uniformity in our decisions. It's a, supposed to be a safe place for us to talk about these deep feelings. So please feel free to pursue unity based on the gospel, not on any other characteristic, and to be amazed at Jesus and the power of the gospel to, to organize and prioritize our life. So those are, that's the purpose of the course. And then our assertions so far, the ones I've tried to make, are that um, the early church overcame very difficult divisions through Jew and Gentile, and serves as an example that such things are possible, that the gospel itself transcends conservative, liberal, uh, any other political category. The gospel is greater and broader than those uh, man-made thought patterns. Um, if there are disputable matters in, if there are, I shouldn't speak so unclearly, if there are disputable matters, involved in politics, if that is true, then we are supposed to treat one another accordingly with respect, love, and not condemning one another. And then we talked about the different spheres of influence and responsibility, the idea that one of the helpful ways to think about things is to see that church is responsible for certain things, the family is responsible for certain things, the individual is, and the state is. And when those fields of influence, those spheres of influence overlap or conflict, that's where a lot of the problems occur. But it's helpful to know, and it's not helpful when, when the state starts telling the family to do what only the family's supposed to do. And so those, when we get outside of our sphere of influence, we're, we, we make things bad, messy. Um, and I, I think that God created those spheres of influence that way. And then we also um, talked about that the complexity of the decision-making process for uh, political votes is so complicated that it's not that we can't make a good decision, but it's not necessarily possible to always tell what the other person was thinking when they made their decision. And then last week we talked specifically about what might be true to make a believer uh, choose a different critical biblical issue at a different level than you do. And I submitted the idea that perhaps some believers view uh, racial racism, racial injustice and racism as a more imminent threat than other believers might perceive um, pro-choice as being a threat. And so there's differences even on very critical things, like the, the Bible's clear on both of those categories. So that's what I've been trying to assert so far. And again, my goal of this whole course, as I just said a moment ago, is that we would respect one another and not condemn one another. 
Okay, so tonight I want to talk about the dangers of politicking that is unique to those of us who claim to be and are students of the Bible. So what, without trying to reverse engineer the blanks that you could fill in, um, and since my list is also limited, I'm sure there are many dangers. What would you consider as one of the dangers unique to Bible students in the realm of political engagement? What, what are some of the things that, as Bible-believing Christians, we may be uniquely exposed to? What dangers? <clears throat> the fact that you believe the Bible and you are a citizen of the United States in 2023 puts you in a spot that's different than believers have been in history. So my question is what some unique dangers might apply to us, just to get your thinking. Um, I'll repeat for you rather than run, if that's okay. Okay, different views of future events, right? Prophecy. Uh, as Bible students, if we have a particular view that can make a difference, what other things might be particularly dangerous for us? Any other things just to get you? Okay, different views on how you interpret specific passages in general. And so specific teachings in the Bible um, that, right, say that again? Right, that you couldn't, yeah, the fact that your interpretation could be right or wrong would still be a danger that you could carry your interpretation of a Bible passage into the voting booth, so to speak, and you're processing, and you might be mistaken about that particular thing. For example, a person might uh, take the teachings in the Bible to Israel about not intermarrying and that they should not, uh, that the Jews were never supposed to intermarry, intermarry with the Moabites or other nations. You could take that biblical perspective into the voting booth and vote in ways that would be against mixed race marriages, right, in our day and age. And that would be a, an ingredient that might be a dangerous one to bring in there. That might be a misinterpretation of what God was doing. I would argue that is a misinterpretation. God was doing something unique for his people to keep them as a clear sign. And there were means by which a Moabitess could become a member of the people of God, as in Ruth. And so it, it wasn't a racial problem. It was a cultural, religious problem, a cleanness factor, and it was faithfulness to God as the king of Israel. And so the, in that context, it's a different thing than to say, oh, those people shouldn't get married because one of them comes from this ethnic background and this one comes from this ethnic background. It, it's a misapplication in two ways. First of all, we're not Israel. Second of all, that difference between the people of God and those who are not the people of God is not necessarily a racial difference. It wasn't 
the skin color that was the variable for Moses. It was a cultural, religious um, representative issue of cleanness or uncleanness. So, so that's an example of a dangerous thing that a, a believer could mis misappropriate into the Bible, from the Bible into the voting booth. I don't know what issues we'd ever vote on that would be that way anymore, but you understand. Any other um, dangers that you can think of, Larry? Okay, so yeah, the, it's a challenge sometimes for people to discern when the Bible is speaking figuratively or literally. And, um, and even those two words, literally, can be, mean different things to different people. Um, there is one way of viewing the word literally meaning is lit, uh, actually true. And the other one is uh, literaturely, which is the right way to... So, example, when the book of Revelation says that um, John saw a dragon in the sky waiting to eat the or to kill the baby being born by the woman. Remember that fantastic image that John saw. Um, literally, was it really a woman or is it a metaphor symbol of the nation of Israel? How you answer that question and others like it, like in the... Um, Back when I was a teenager, there was uh, the Left Behind series was pretty popular, and there was uh, the locust that had teeth of iron, I think was a reference made in Revelation. And the camera, after that quote uh, is made, the, the camera zooms in on a helicopter, and it was assumed to be that the helicopter was the fulfillment of the book of Revelation's prediction that there would be um, locusts that had teeth of iron and fire in their tail or could sting or whatever. And, and so they, the idea was, see, John saw a helicopter, didn't know how to describe it, so he called it a locust. Now, okay, I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just saying that is one possible interpretation. It could have been he was talking about locusts metaphorically, like the things that consume the land, like in the book of Joel, and the army of locusts that come and wipe out Israel. And so um, imagery, like Jesus says, I am the door. Does that mean that Jesus is literally a door or figuratively a door? Was he a door with hinges? A six-panel door? Was it a doorknob? Was the doorknob pearl? Right? This is my body. Did he mean, this is, you're supposed to eat my flesh? Did he mean, is that a metaphor? Was that an illustration? Or was that literal? And these things can get you into trouble. So that's a danger unique to the Bible students. What other possible dangers might there be? Any others you can think of? Joe?
Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Because we have such a high value on the Word of God, and it's we have the tendency, given a persuasion or an idea, we have a tendency to go to the Bible to make it support our idea rather than submitting to whether or not that idea is biblical by itself. And that's a tough one because... Um, Sometimes the Bible isn't always black and white clear about certain things, right? It does say thou shalt not murder, so that's a real clear one. But it might not say things like thou shalt not build a four-lane highway. And so so then you could say, well, what, you know, I'm so against this highway project that you could go to the Bible. Well, where in the Bible can I get strong terminology that makes it sound like I'm being biblical. Now, we, they would never say this out loud, right? But what happens is individuals will use the Bible to add weight to their argument. And that's different than looking at the Bible to see whether the Bible says anything and if it does submitting to it. So you can go to the Bible and look for answers to questions and getting ga- guidance from the Bible, but... But it is a small, and like Joe said, it's, a, it's an easy step for those who value the Bible to shift a little over and use the Bible to sound biblical when they're not being biblical at all, necessarily. So what verse you could use for the four-lane highway illustration is there's a proverb that says, don't move the marking stone or cornerstone that your fathers have established, or make straight the way for the Lord, right? Or, you know, make straight a path for him in the desert. May the mountains made low and the valleys made up. You know, these are all interesting things to say, but they doesn't necessarily mean that God says, thus saith the Lord, this highway should go this way, right? That would be a, a grand assumption on our part. And so it is, and this is, this is a danger for Bible believers because we, we do value the Bible, but sometimes we use it to play our game. The Pharisees did that a lot. Well, I don't want to spend too long here, but let me just tell you the ones that I found. One, one is you can have a mistaken or I want to say adamant as in like overly confident. You could have a mistaken or super confident perspective on the Bible's teaching regarding future events. And that mentality could be dangerous. So if you are persuaded, for example, that the kingdom of heaven will have to manifest itself in this day and age, let's, let me back up. There are people who have taught in history that Jesus will come back when the church has gained power and authority over the earth, when we have changed the earth into the kingdom of heaven, then Jesus will come back. We have prepared the earth for him. We have obeyed his commission and established the earth. The nice thing about that view of the end times is that it's, it's an optimistic view. It perceives the future as something that we should work towards. It has a, a redemptive view of our world and culture, that we should be transforming culture, because when we clean it up enough, then Jesus will come back. But there's another teaching about the future that 
as Paul says in Timothy, in the last days, things will go from bad to worse. And it'll be tra tragedies around the world, rumors of war. I remember hearing that, right? And wars and rumors of war. And when Gog and Magog unite and come down in the horde from the east and all these things. And so I was raised in a teaching environment where we kind of were hoping for the world to go to hell in a handbasket so Jesus would come back. And until and unless it did, he wouldn't come back, which at the same time indirectly kind of led the circle of people that I was with to be a little less interested in trying to change culture or trying to help our world be better. And, you know, why care about air pollution? God's going to come back anyway. Why, why clean up the river? I remember it being a big deal when I was in grade school how polluted Lake Michigan was. You remember those days? AOY was all over, and, and it was really, and boats could just dump raw sewage into Lake Michigan. I mean, Lake Michigan is way cleaner today than it was back then. But I remember hearing debates about it even as young as third and fourth grade, and, and, um, and people had the view as, oh, we're overly worried about the world, and that's wrong. So if you have a strong or mistaken view of the future, it could influence your views about how politics should go. I mean, if you were really wanting Jesus to come back, you'd sort of be incentivized to vote for the Antichrist, kind of. I mean, that's the way I, you know, you would never admit it, but that's sort of the world I grew up in is, man, we can't wait. Who is it? Is it Kissinger? I remember when I was there, everybody knew it was Kissinger because if you took the letters of his name and ran them against A is 6, B is 12, C is 18, you know, all the measures, all the letters of the alphabet, 6, 12, count by 6, and then you take Kissinger and add it up, it came out to 666. So they knew it was Kissinger. That was who it was. And so that, uh, what is it, uh, end times bingo, right, going around who's, Who's the Antichrist? Who's the false prophet today? Those Being super confident about those things, I think it could lead a person to danger. But Jesus says, or in Acts 1, the Bible says, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, they were thinking about that even before Jesus ascended. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. And so from day one, right, the church has been told, it's not for you to know who, when, why about these end times. We're supposed to expect it any time. Um, I'm not saying we don't aren't living in the last days or that we shouldn't think that we are. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying... Watch out about being so adamant about certain things. You can't vote for them. That's the Antichrist. You don't know. And so, I don't know. I'm just trying to remind us that it could be a danger to think that way. So that's one danger. I, the other danger that I see is pretty relevant in, our, in America especially is the misappropriation of promises that were given to the nation of Israel. And so we... We like to think of ourselves as a Christian nation founded on Christian principles and um, all of these things. And that, that has become under attack in recent years, or not recent years, but history. Different people interpret early founding differently that we're not nearly as Christian as we would like to think of ourselves. 
Most of them were deists, atheists. Tim, you're talking. Do you want to? Okay. So Tim is an expert on these things, and so I'm nervous about um, wandering into his garden. Uh, so, so, the, so I don't want to get into the big whole thing about whether we're a Christian nation or not. I just want to argue that we aren't a Christian nation in the way that Israel was. I'm just whatever. You know, Israel was the people of God. God himself rescued them out of Egypt. And he said, I am your God. And they didn't have a king because he was the king. And it was not until... Um, they rebelled against him under the time of Samuel and asked for a king, and he warned them not to. And so uh, God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And so the government form of the nation of Israel for, for most of it, all of its beginning, was a theocracy. It was God's people, and they were sent to the earth to deliver the Messiah to the earth and save the whole world through the seed of Abraham but they were also supposed to be a light on a hill, a shining example for the world so that all Gentiles would be blessed through them. And because of their sins and failings, they were cast away and they had exiles and they were scattered and all those things. But as Romans 11 makes clear, God is not going to uh, renege on his promises to Abraham and there's a future for Israel. All of those things to say, the promises given to the nation of Israel do not one for one correspond to as if they were promises made to the United States of America. It's not the same. It's just not the same. As much as we want it to be, as much as it feels like it would be good, like this verse here. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will hear their, heal their land. And I have heard that understood and taught as a promise to the United States that God will heal our land if his people humble themselves and pray. I remember at camp quoting the verse every morning. Um, how did it go? Um, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But sin is a reproach to any people. And that's, those are true statements. And I'm not saying that this isn't true in, in a principular way. It's always true that God works through his people and their prayers. And God does provide healing to the world through his people. But this is not the same kind of promise that it was when it was first written. So let me just read for you the whole passage, okay? Just so you get how different this actually is. This is when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace. And the Lord appeared to him at night. So God is appearing to Solomon in a dream at night. And God is saying, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. Which place? The temple in Jerusalem, the place that he just built, okay? When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land, those are helicopters, by the way, no, sorry. 
or command helicopters to devour the land or send a plague among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So if God sends locusts or drought or plague and his people call, he'll heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. What place? The temple. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. That's, that's not the United States. The name is on the temple, not this is Yahweh. Yahweh's name is on the temple. As for you, Solomon, if you walk before me faithfully as David or our father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when you said, when I said you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. So this is a kingship in Israel, a promise to David. He said, but if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and object of ridicule among all peoples. And that's what happened, right? They wandered away, and God had to reject his people and when Jesus came to that temple, they rejected him. And that's why they are under such a scourge around the world, right? They're the object of ridicule among all peoples. So that promise was in the middle of a vision to Solomon about his kingdom at the time that he established the temple. Principally, it's true that when people pray, it makes a difference. No doubt about that. The New Testament tells us to pray for the king to pray for the emperor of Rome, right? But that's not where the name of God was put, not on the temple. So all of that to say, a Christian can uniquely, one of the dangers is that we would go into the voting booth thinking we're voting in Israel. And we're just not. Okay. Another danger, I think, is that there could be confusion regarding the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to have the kingdom of heaven? And, and this is related to the future events also. But some people think of the kingdom as a here and now political entity. And the Bible, to summarize quickly, the Bible perceives it, uh, the way I understand it, as a invisible kingdom. Look how Jesus talks to Pilate. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were... My servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. If it was a here and now political kingdom, there'd be a fight. But right now, my kingdom is from another place. And so our, by using other verses, our citizenship is in heaven, not here, that way. And then Romans points out, and this is in the passage talking about treating one another who had disputable matters, that we would treat each other with respect, Paul reminds them, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's not a 
thing you do with your hands. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's where God rules and reigns in your hearts. That's my interpretation. So, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. So I just want to say that it's easy to be confused about the kingdom of heaven. Any questions or comments on my three, uh, my list of three dangers that are unique to Bible students? Is that hold water enough for you to be okay? All right, so that's my perspective. And so I would just say, be careful when you're arguing with other people to not misappropriate the Bible. We, we view the Bible as authoritative, and it is, and it should influence us. And the command, thou shalt not kill, carries much weight, right? We are never to vote for the, um, if at all possible, to, we would never do things that would encourage the killing of innocents. And so, uh, so the Bible is clear on the moral things that we need to know. But that doesn't mean that, um, whatever. Okay, then I also want to say that there's dangers that for religious people in general. So this is not just Bible students, but people who view religion and as an important practice. And so here I'm kind of talking about religion as like non-gospel religion, right? The idea of moralistic, therapeutic, deism kind of religion. You know, the, the idea that... Um, God has created people with certain inalienable rights and um, natural laws, how we decide what these things are. And, and so there's a different danger for religious people in general. What, uh, again, trying not to reverse engineer my notes, does anybody have any suggestions for what, what religious people in general struggle with as a potential danger? The religious movement in America? Joe. Right, so one of the dangers for religious people is because they care so much about the religion and they also care so much about their country that they conflate the two as if they're the same and that they would expect religion to govern and rule all of culture in the same way that, uh, that religion rules their lives. This is interesting because Joe told me from the uh, church history class that is Islam views life this way, right, Joe? Is that my turn? That for them, there is no separation of church and state. Their religion is to convert the state. The state is the arm of the religion. They have reached what God, what Allah wants when the nation is practicing, what's the name of it? Sharia law. Sharia law. So for them, what is it? Sharia. Sharia. So, um, for them, there is no distinction. And, and one of the things I heard also on a podcast from um, this last week was that when witnessing to Islamic people, it's important for you to try to explain to them that that's not how we view Christianity. That, see, for many people in Islamic countries, they view the United States as Christian in the same way that they're Islamic. They assume that we are uh, unified 
culturally and religiously in the same way, and therefore we would do things as ruthless to them as they would impose on us. That's how they view the world. And so um, it's a distinction. Other dangers for religious people in general? Becky? Yes. 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 Yeah, so Becky was reminding us when John F. Kennedy was candidating for president, he was the first Catholic president uh, candidate, I think, or the first one elected. But I remember my mom being nervous about that when I was a little boy. And the fear being is that a devout Catholic would, would allow or expect the Pope to make calls for them. And so the danger was, would the United States actually become subjugated to the, to the um, what do you call it, papacy? The papacy, yeah. And so that they, so, so uh, one possible danger for religious people in general when it comes to politics is where does their fealty, their loyalty lie? Is it to their church or to the, the Constitution? You know, who's in the United States, who's their boss really? Is it their church organization or is it the Congress or is it the Constitution? Is it the people? I mean, they're supposed to swear an oath to the Constitution, I think, right? Isn't that what a, a government official does is they swear to uphold the Constitution, the written document that... Um, so anyway, that's another danger. Any other dangers you can think of for religious people in general? Well, the ones I have is um, one of the... If a person is moralistic and thinks that better living comes from better living or that prosperity comes from better living, is that you can misunderstand the cause of problems, right? If you think that sin is not really a problem, that people would be better off if they were just, that people, the reason people mess up is because of their environment, that you could fix it you could fix sin in the pro you could fix wickedness or evil in the world with better education with better nutrition with better uh, public policies and they misunderstand how deep-seated sin is and so if you think that the problem in America is education problem um, you are leaning into the idea that human beings aren't born sinful, they're just born ignorant. And if you taught them well enough, so this is why, how do we solve all these teenage pregnancies? Well, give them sex education, that'll fix it. Or, you know, I know, I know I'm being polemic, but you understand that if you misunderstand the nature of humanity, you're going to trust people when you shouldn't, and you're gonna trust solutions that are not solutions for real life problems. And so it's really, I think, healthy to remember that human beings are by nature sinful. And so you need to put in systems that um, incentivize good behavior, not reward bad behavior, and things like that. So I think one of the dangers is if you have an optimistic, moralistic view of human, human nature, you're going to misapply wisdom. Another thing is that... Um, I think that a person could lean into depending on the institutions of the state. I think it's a tragedy that that the charitable works of our nation used to be privately done and managed by the church and over the 
I don't know how and when, but over the years, it's become a state responsibility to take care of our poor and needy. And so much so that much of our citizens, citizenry expects the nation to take care of them and is angry when it doesn't. And so I, it makes me nervous that we trust the state to do things that it ought not or cannot do. And so I think a religious person might fall in, is that just me? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Okay, and then um, the other one that bothers me is it's super easy to confuse symbols. So you can confuse cultural and religious symbols to try to get that, um, that sense of cultural identity. And it winds, up, it winds up messing up the religious symbol. And so, um, I think the cross is a good example that has the cross as a symbol has been appropriated by advocates of American culture, that we are a Christian nation, and it, it quit meaning that it was a reminder of the place where Jesus died for the sins of the world, and it became a symbol or be, has become in many people's mind a symbol of what makes America great or this is who we are. And so one of the manifestations, I'm sure you've seen it, and if you have one, I'm not condemning you, but I'm sure you've seen the, the, the outline profile of a soldier bowing down at a cross with his gun on his knee or whatever. And um, I've interpreted that as, in, my, in most cases, I would interpret that as a person whose family members had served our nation and at the same time trusted God and were asking God to take care of them on the battlefield. And so I've, I've chosen to interpret that as a more or less... Um, positive way of saying we remember those who have died for our country and we honor them. But it's not very hard to see the symbol in quite a bit different way, right? This is bearing arms and using the cross as an excuse to bear arms and turning it into a, um, a rallying cry for violence or as, and not distinguishing between the agendas of the church and the agendas of the state. And so I, I know there's some people who view it that way and are very offended by that symbol. That use of the cross in that general picture. And so um, you could maybe argue that some of the uses of crosses, like on the January 6th insurrection, or what, uh, not insurrection, what do you want to call it? January 6th. The January 6th event, that the use of the cross there was maybe a cultural message more than a Christian message, right? We're advocating for, and um, it, it bothers me. It breaks my heart that there was one sign that said, Jesus saves, as they're chanting or shouting, hang the vice president. <laughs> you know, it seems a little like a disconnect, but... Um, so I'm offended because I see that religious symbol being used in a way that I would like to not have it used. 
But it's not necessarily that the persons doing it were doing it to desecrate. What I think they've done is they've confused the symbols of the culture of the United States that they want to promote and like and and not seen it as the mixing of religious and cultural symbol. They've just confused them in their minds. It's not that big of a stretch for them. Do you follow what I'm trying to say? So I'm not um, advocating or condemning. I'm just trying to say it gets confusing. <laughs> That's all I'm trying to say. The, the symbols get used in the wrong way. Any questions about that? Does it make sense? There you go. Yeah, the rainbow symbol has been stolen, right? When I was little, the rainbow was almost always, in, if not entirely, the reminder of the promise of God and at worst, the beauty of nature. And now if you have anything that's rainbow-like in your attire, you look like you're trying to advocate for the LGBT movement. And so it's a, that's a frustrating thing. Any thoughts or questions about all that? So again, my goal tonight was not to get you mad. And uh, I think I did okay. But uh, to just point out that in the, in, under the general category of the gospel and politics, I just want to warn my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that as a people who are devoted to the Bible, we can, miss a, we can be careful of the dangers of misappropriating your Bible to make it say something it doesn't say. And secondly, be careful of letting your religion blind you to the gospel. It's, it's possible for us to become pharisaical in our views of life and forget that the only hope is the Lord Jesus. And we are desperately sinful and... Um, there is no religious system that can suppress the evil that comes from our heart. It needs to be cleaned out and washed away by the blood of Jesus. And so you can't, you can't outwardly force conformity to the gospel. You can get most people to behave better, but then the evil just goes underground. And you can't make, you can't make um, an organization pure through the outside. It's got to come from the inside. Through Only Jesus can do that. And we are a brother and sisters who are being made pure because every one of us here that I know is uh, has given our lives to Jesus and are quick to admit that we are sinners and we repent. It's the, um, the idea that we can clean ourselves up on the outside. That's just not true. All right. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this study. Help us to um, continue to move forward. Give us wisdom as we apply your word in the world as we live. In Jesus' name, amen.